Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Madeline Ostrander. Madeline, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Glad to have you here. If it's okay with you, I'll read a quick bio of yours uh, before getting into your book. Is that okay? Of course, yeah. Okay, so Madeline Ostrander is an, a science journalist and writer whose work has appeared in the NewYorker.com, The Nation, Sierra Magazine, PBS's Nova Next, Slate, and numerous, numerous other outlets. Her reporting on climate change and environmental justice has taken her to locations such as the Alaskan Arctic, the Australian Outback. Okay, now there's grants, fellowships, and residencies. There are too many to list, but a lot. And you're in Seattle. You live in Seattle with your husband. And the book is At Home on an Unruly Planet, Finding Refuge on a Changed Earth. And there's a lot in the title, especially the concept of home. And I want to get to that, but I wonder if, um, is there anything in the, more to your background or that led you to write this book at this time? There's a few different strands that the book brings together from my background. Um, one is that I was doing a lot of environmental justice reporting. So um, I was working for a magazine called Yes Magazine, which is based out on Bainbridge, what well, was based out on Bainbridge Island, Washington. Now it's um, a little bit more remote in the sense that people are, a lot of people are based in Seattle, but they're based all over the place. But um, but uh, I was working for Yes Magazine and I was doing some environmental justice reporting. And um, I found that when I talked to activists and organizations that were working on environmental justice issues, so like um, environmental justice focuses on, let's say, things like pollution that disproportionately affect uh, lower income communities or communities of color. And they focus on questions where social justice and racial justice and environmental issues overlap. And so there's inherently in that kind of work questions about home, like we're affected by this at home in our communities. And how do we fight for these communities to, to be healthy and to have a safe, healthy future? And when those groups started t- taking on climate change and looking at climate change, they also came at it from that perspective. How do we make sure that the most vulnerable people in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, in Oakland or in Richmond, which appears in the book, how do we make sure that those communities um, are taken care of and that the solutions we come up with for climate change don't worsen the same kinds of inequalities that we already have in these places? And um, in talking about that, they, they talked about climate change in this very tangible, emotional, visceral, local way. And I found it just so helpful and refreshing. And um, we have a tendency, we've had a tendency for a long time to talk about climate change as this far off thing, you know, ice melting somewhere far away and hockey stick graphs and abstract discussions about the future. And I think people really need to see how it's relevant to their own lives and to be able to read stories and and read about experiences that help them understand what they can be doing. So that was part of where the book came from. There's a lot in what you just said. The I want to come back after we talk about the specific cases you talked about, about the concept of home. What is home? How is it? What is it? I mean, because you come at it from different dictionary definitions each place and how people are being displaced from their homes. Also home in an anthropological sense, going back millions of years, mm-hmm. how humans and our non-human ancestors dealt with these things. But, and you talked about the different places and all right, at the beginning you say it's not about doom, but 
the themes are fire, flood, thaw, thaw meaning, well, we'll get to that, and explosion, which are, I, yeah, it's not doom. It's this is what's here now already. And was it, so you chose a couple of places and uh, I kind of felt like the book is, I felt like it was character driven by the people in these places. And each place seemed like its own character itself as well, as well as climate overall. I'm not sure if that's what you're going for. Did Was that your goal? I mean, you really went into a lot of depth with each place and people in each place. Yeah, I really wanted both each place to feel like, as you said, I, I felt like each place was a character, each community. And then also there are people within those communities who are the characters in the book. And I wanted... Um, I wanted people to be able to see themselves in the characters and to be able to say, you know, I can imagine how I can deal with this crisis as well. I wanted to give people some uplifting stories that, that, but I mean, they're not just uplifting, right? As you point out, I mean, yeah. there are fires and explosions and, and that sort of thing. But, but I mean, the, the role in a lot of ways of storytelling is to show people what it means to go through some kind of challenge or crisis or new situation and how did they solve it. So then in our minds, we form a kind of mental map of how we respond to that crisis. And so I wanted to give people that in an era of, of climate change. How do we respond to these crises that we're going through that are caused by or connected to climate change? How'd you pick the ones that you did? Um, well, so funnily at the beginning, I, um, I guess being, having been a magazine journalist, uh, I kind of wanted to throw in a ton of stories. <laughs> I was way over ambitious with how I thought the book was going to go. Um, my editor and my literary agents, uh, convinced me that it would be better to pick a few and focus on those so that we could really get to know them and do some good narrative storytelling about each one. I picked four that would represent four different aspects of dealing with the climate crisis. So, um, you know, there's a, a chapter or a pair of chapters on wildfire and a community that's gone through really extreme megafires and had to recover from that. There's, as you mentioned, one on thaw, so on a community in Alaska that's having to relocate because of permafrost thaw and the extreme erosion that's happening because of that. Um, there's a community in Florida, one of the most historic communities in the country that's trying to figure out how to deal with sea level rise and hurricanes. And then there's Richmond, California, which is dealing more with the, the industries that are connected to this crisis that we're living in. So Richmond is right alongside an oil refinery, and they've had to deal with a lot of the impacts, the industrial They've dealt with a major industrial accident related to the refinery, and they've been trying to reimagine what it would look like to create a community that isn't dependent on oil. And the four, in the four, they're kind of like the, in a way, the classic hero's journey. They're like a hero walks into a new world and has to figure out how to navigate this new world. But the new world is the world that we're all living in that's altered by climate change. And in, so in the first part of the book, they're dealing with some aspect of that. And in the second part of the book, they're trying to find solutions. Okay, yeah, I did see that big shift of of coming back and returning to the solutions. I have to say, it's something that hit me when I was reading the the fire section, and then it hit me with every other section too, which was you would talk about some big fire, and the date would be two thousand six, and I'd think, well, that was a while ago. It's going to get worse, and then there'd be something about twenty eighteen. I was like, yeah, this is the way it is now, 
And then I think, wait a minute, that was still five years ago. And if you had written five years ago, what would be happening today? I think people say, no way, it's not going to get that bad. And I couldn't help but think, what's going to be five years from now is going to be that much more, but the Delta is probably going to be yet bigger. And, you know, there's this phrase, the new normal, but I feel like the new normal isn't, doesn't capture it. It's, we're still, the slope isn't leveling off. And so that happened with me, that hit me like every one, because there'd be the floods or the thaws. And, and I think, well, it's got, it's getting worse. It's getting bigger. With the explosion, I feel like we're spending more money on fossil fuel. We, you and me, and, and like American citizens are spending as much money as ever on fossil fuel. So they have as much money as ever to keep doing what they're doing. I did see a statistic just a couple of days ago, I think this year, I'd have to go back to the story to get you the exact, but um, uh, coal and, sorry, solar and wind have just outpaced coal um, in this country. And I mean, I have a lot more, in some ways, I, I mean, I'm both more alarmed and I also have more hope than I did maybe even a couple of years ago, partly because we've passed the Inflation Reduction Act. And so we've actually put in into law some pretty big incentives for making transitions across the country away from fossil fuels. And there's a lot of other stories that I think I would like to tell and that I think a lot of other journalists are going to be following about how communities everywhere are making these kinds of transitions, electrifying, um, investing in more renewables. So there is a lot happening, actually. Um, there's, you know, a number of states that have committed to going 100% renewable, but yeah, the impacts are getting worse all the time. Um, I wanted in the book to show that there were different kinds of trajectories. There are different kinds of choices that people could take. So, um, for instance, there's a section, there's a couple chapters about St. Augustine, Florida and about sea level rise. And one of them opens with the scientist, Andrea Dutton, who's an oceanographer, and she talks about how, you know, we're on this path to have some pretty serious sea level rise over the next decades or centuries. You know, some of it will be very distant into the future, but some of it will be sooner. And how soon that happens depends on what kinds of choices we make about emissions around the world as a, as a human society. And I, I wanted to convey to people that that we we have those choices. We're making those choices all the time. It's not all just happening by default. I think that sometimes that gets lost in the storytelling on climate change and in the, in the news on climate change, you know, we're, this isn't just a passive process. We have decisions that we make as, yeah, as, as individuals, as communities, as a human society, we have choices about what happens with climate change and what kind of future we create. I think sometimes that gets lost in the some of the news coverage about climate change. Yes, it's much easier to show a flood than it is to show um, someone not having a big truck that they could have had and instead they're biking. Like that's not as photogenic. I mean, maybe. I, th I actually think there's lots of good ways to tell solutions-based stories. Um, I think if you, you know, you could tell a story about somebody creating all kinds of amazing bike infrastructure and bike sharing, and, and that could be a really cool story, <laughs> especially if you could find data that like that was actually leading people to do more biking and less driving. Um, it is it is a complicated challenge getting people out of their cars. Um, 
one of the things that came up recently, for instance, uh, that's not about biking, uh, but uh, I did an event, a book event in the Meta Valley, which is in the the chapter in the book about fire. And Susan Pritchard, who's who starts off the book, I follow her story throughout the book. She um, said something to the group that was gathered there that I thought was really profound and beautiful about how actually the fires that they've had in the region have um, lessened the risk that that community will have for a long time. And that there's a lot of work, a lot of prescribed firework, a lot of work in the forests, a lot of work on the landscape and in the rangelands that can happen to restore those ecosystems. There's actually a lot of resilience in nature and a lot of resilience in, in the ecosystems around, around the Meta Valley. She's like, I want you to imagine that like we, every year we see fire season coming, but instead of being terrified about it, we know what to do. And we've taken care of and restored these ecosystems around us. We've taken care of our home basically. So one of the points in the book is that ecosystem is part of home. And so she, she said, you know, I want you to imagine that we've been able to do this. And so that um, fire season doesn't have to be as frightening as it is right now. And we can actually restore these forests. And we have, you know, a bit of a bit of resilience built in to this place. And, and if we take care of it, if we t- and we take care of the planet, we could we could be OK. And I think. That's part of what I'm trying to convey in the book. Like it's not hope is not all lost. We, you know, we still have choices. We're in a in a very alarming, frightening crisis. And I didn't want to soft pedal that, but we do have choices about how it plays out. Yeah, in the past, when people talk about doom and gloom, they're talking about projections. And this book is not about projections. It's about people's actual lives. And I think that's a huge difference. That uh, I mean, it could have been written decades ago for any number of places outside the U.S., but this is in the U.S. And it doesn't, I think 10 years ago, people would have thought, this is not the U.S., but it is. And it's not, I mean, it's it's everyone. I mean, there's no escaping it. It's not like um, the fires. I mean, but I, I want to go back a second too, that um, you talked about uh, the biking and the car stuff. And I have to talk about, regular listeners know that I talk about this a bunch, but there's this, YouTube series called Not Just Bikes. And it's this guy who grew up in Canada, lived all in different places, but settled in Amsterdam and kept asking himself, why do I like Dutch cities so much? Uh-huh. I didn't know this. Did you know that Amsterdam was covered with cars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? It was like choked with them. That's interesting. I did not know that. I didn't know it except for these videos, which get millions of views. Mm-hmm. And because it's kind of funny too. And the the not Seattle, um, Dutch citizens sat down on the streets. There were actually plans to make it, to have like all these bypasses coming in, raising the downtown to make it more like Houston. And the citizens said, no, we're not going to, we're going to stop this. And over decades, they switched it to being a place where the average person wouldn't think of driving a car in Amsterdam because it's just not, the bikes and walking are so much, and trams are so much more useful. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's like pushing bikes is one thing, but I think as, as long as the highways are there, people are going to act like, well, I have no choice. What can I do? I must drive. And they'll have various reasons that in their minds are – well, they really do make sense. But they moved far to the ends of the highways because someone built the highways. If we were to say take the highways down as – well, Amsterdam prevented them from being built. But I think of like the Embarcadero Highway in San Francisco – 
mm-hmm. that people said we should take this down and no one was going to take down this very expensive thing, but that the, an earthquake hit. They took it down and no one wants to put it back up again. Mm-hmm. But had we chosen to do that, we could have chosen to do that. We didn't have to rely on an earthquake. Well, we didn't, an earthquake was, I don't want to say fortuitous because it did a lot of damage, but at least with the Embarcadero, it led to taking it down. And I feel like that's something going on with the um, with Richmond in California that they they want to restore things so that it's natural. The easy like it's easy to do things that don't pollute. Yeah, one of the reasons I picked Richmond was that you know we we talk about how to confront climate change. We need to get off of fossil fuels, but most of us don't have to directly face impacts of them, you know, right in front of us. And and Richmond is a town that was built around a refinery. I mean, the refinery actually predates the town. And it's one of the most um, polluting and biggest refineries on the West Coast. And in that community, I mean, I, I find it really extraordinary that people have gotten together and said, Maybe we could imagine this place without this refinery. And now they they actually have elected um, a majority of people on the city council who are from this little local um, progressive party that's very anti-corporate. And so the, the city council and the mayor are saying, we want to talk about retiring this refinery. Does this city have the power to make that happen? And that's an extraordinary thing for a city to say and for a community to get together and say, like, especially because the community has for a long time relied on revenue from that that revenue. But these are the kinds of conversations that I think people need to have. We need to stretch our imaginations a little bit and or a lot, actually, (laughs) and imagine how could how could this place be different? How could we think about what we really care about and what we really want to have here and make it happen? And those are the, the kinds of conversations that help us imagine that the solutions to climate change are also possible, that we could actually shut down a refinery and, you know, build a huge, there's now one of the largest solar farms in the Bay Area is in Richmond right next to the refinery. And they have all these urban farms all over the community. There's a bunch of green businesses that have moved in. And so there's this process happening of recreating that place. And we need to be doing that everywhere. We need to be recreating. We need to be recreating our homes. We need to be recreating our communities and, and imagining what's possible. That would be a nice bit of jujitsu. It feels like jujitsu of using superior force against itself because Chevron, I mean, a lot of that story was that Chevron has huge amounts of money that it can just throw around and it gets money from all over the world and then directs it just at a few places. So it can totally defeat people. If, you know, if you take all the money from all over the world and just concentrate it in one or two places or a small number of places where they have refineries, they're going to win because the people there have, they do not have a world's worth of resources. Mm-hmm. But, they do have the vote and if they were if they found a way to knock out the refinery suddenly chevron's in trouble there was a guy that chevron got into office um bates bats some not bates um there are a number of candidates in uh, richmond who had taken campaign funding from chevron over the years and one of the things that the book uh chronicles is that in 2014 those candidates didn't win even though they got a ton of money from Chevron and Chevron did a lot of advertising and just really put money and influence into this little bitty mayoral and city council elections, 
the candidates who opposed Chevron won seats on the city council. And so, as you said, it showed that, you know, just because a, a corporation has a lot of weight and a lot of influence, they don't always succeed. And I think in some ways it kind of backfired because I think that the community... So the community went through a major refinery fire in 2012, and that was, you know, it sent 15,000 people in the region to health clinics and hospitals with respiratory issues. And it was, it was a turning point for the community. They suddenly lost people who, anyone who had trust in, in that company, I think lost a lot of it. And I think people really started to feel that its presence there wasn't wanted. And so I think that um, the company's ability to influence what would happen in the 2014 elections was limited. But I would also say that it's part of a larger trend happening across California. Um, governor, The governor of California is you know, more willing to come out against fossil fuels and say that we need to confront big oil. Um, you know, there's been... Number of laws passed in California, an anti-price gouging bill passed in California. There's um, the city of Los Angeles has passed a moratorium on oil drilling within Los Angeles. A lot of people don't even know that there's actually oil drilling within the boundaries of Los Angeles, which is its own fascinating story. But there's been a moratorium on that, and those the plan is to shut those wells down and stop that from happening in the future. So. There's a there's a turning of the tides in California about oil, and um, I think Richmond is is part of that. And I think, I mean, this is always this is always the way like a lot of environmental stories play out, right? There's the this sort of the power of of people getting together and saying they want something to be a certain way. They want they have a certain vision for the future, and then there's the power of people with a lot of money, and there's often a showdown over it. But I think. I'm hopeful that um, that Richmond can have a say over its destiny and over what happens with that refinery. You remind me when I took the train to LA, and I do remember when it came into LA, I saw those what do you call them? Those rigs that go up and down the, the oil yeah. drilling things. What are they called? Oil rigs? Is that a rig? No, the rigs Derek. in the ocean. Derek. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was like, wait, am I in? Have I gone back in time to Texas in 1950? And then I was like, no, this is LA today. And yeah, it was surprising. Yeah. Yeah, it is it is strange to see them right there in the city, but um uh California, sorry, Los Angeles was basically built in the middle of an oil field. And so I mean people um people have oil wells in front of their houses. And I mean, you know, you ha- also have to think about the the complicated history of, of oil in this country. Um, there's another book by Erica Bolstad called Windfall that wrestles with the fact that a lot of our heritage is bound up with with oil, especially certain families like in North Dakota or like in, in California. And it was a way for people to try to earn money and try to secure a future for themselves. And, you know, unfortunately, it hasn't turned out to be a sustainable or healthy way for us to earn money and try to build a future for ourselves. And so we need to choose a different path. Um, so, but, you know, there probably there's, I'm sure there was an era in Los Angeles where people welcomed having those um, pump jacks near their houses, but uh, now it's different. Yeah. I mean, I try to look back with compassion at people. And I mean, there was a time when I guess it's a modern phrase, but the the solution to pollution is dilution. And they thought, well, I mean, there were forest fires long before humans existed. I mean, lightning would 
cause forest fires and that smoke would eventually make its way into new plants. And I can imagine up until, I don't know, the 70s or 80s, people could feel like, all right, well, it's dirty nearby, but you know, the solution to pollution is solution. I, that doesn't fly today. I mean, some people still feel like, well, it'll all sort itself out today, but I, I don't think that's tenable. But it's, I can imagine it seemed like it could have been. But we, we were getting back, when you were talking about the oil derricks outside people's homes, I wanted to get back to this concept of home because you looked at it in many different ways. And it's a really rich, deep concept, home. And I mean, you went back millions of years, you went all around the world. And I imagine that that was a personal consideration as well, because you also talked a lot about where you live and how it's changing, how it's changed in the time that you've been there. Yeah. Did, was it really, was it as personal as, as it read? And were you, I mean, were you just writing stuff or did you do a lot of research for coming up with all these different views? All of the above. I mean, it was definitely personal. And I think it became more personal because I was writing the book. One, I was writing the book through the pandemic. And I think for all of us, that probably changed our sense of home. I think our world became smaller. I became a lot more connected with my own neighborhood and my own community. And really, the book, a lot of the book is a uh, call to people to relearn how to be in community with one another. A lot of the solutions to the climate crisis can happen on the scale of the community. A lot of the transitions we need to make are going to happen in communities I mean, you know, they need to happen at lots of different levels and people need to make individual decisions. Um, there's policies that we need to pass. But there's a lot that happens at the level of a, of a community and a lot of things that can get organized there. Um, so, it, I mean, it was personal in the sense that I was living through the pandemic and we, you know, as I was writing this. And so I was trying to reckon with that new world. <laughs> and then um, Seattle was socked in with a ton of smoke from wildfires in 2020, as was the entire West Coast. And we had that week of Labor Day fires in 2020, which was stunning and shocking. And um, I found it quite scary. I mean, I write about it it seeping into my dreams. Um, I had dreams of being in wildfires. I had been spending so much time talking to people who lived through wildfires that I felt this just this wave of empathy for people who were having to lose their homes in those fires. And then the smoke itself was quite toxic and um it sat over the West Coast for quite a you know, quite a number of days. And that was a very weird claustrophobic feeling. And then in 2021, we went through the Pacific Northwest heat dome and Seattle temperatures rose to 108 degrees, which is unprecedented. And um, it was awful. And, you know, we don't really have air conditioning out here very much. And that's starting to change by necessity. But people don't have um, that many ways to deal with that kind of temperature. And so it's very dangerous and very unsettling when Seattle was hit by those temperatures. So it was very personal on that level. And I think it was always personal for me. I mean, I, I've been writing about climate change for something like 15 years now. And I've always wrestled with it on a personal level. I've always wondered, I, I don't know, maybe this is something about being a writer, but I, I've always found myself imagining what will this place, what will Seattle be like in the future? Where will the water levels be? What kind of erosion are we going to start getting around the beaches, what will happen? And and those situations would play out in my mind. And so I think partly I 
you know, I was wrestling in the book with those kinds of questions. What, what does climate change look like? How is it personal? And how do we understand it as a personal thing? Because it's affecting every aspect of our lives. And what's more personal than home? I mean, ultimately, it's a global crisis, but it's going to affect everything about the places that we live in. Given that level of reflection on your own personal situation, was it hard not to put that in the book? I mean, it's in the book, but it's not, I mean, you weren't talking about your own personal, I mean, you did talk about the dreams, but you didn't talk about, I mean, you put it into, I guess that's, that's the skill of a, of a writer, uh, of a, a journalist, I guess. I, I feel like a book is an author, but like to, to be able to find in others the voice, a voice, to get out there? I mean, was it hard not to put that stuff in, your own worries about your own personal space, home? It's definitely in there, and it's in there in a more substantial way than it would be if I were just writing an article, for instance. Um, and, that you know, there definitely are some spots in the book where you find me, like, breaking down and sobbing. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, and there are other spots in the book where I'm, I'm expressing how moved I am by what somebody is doing. Um, I think that I put myself in the book in the ways that I just most in, or, you know, throughout the book, I think that my voice is reflecting on what's happening in these communities. And so I'm sort of guiding you through these stories and I'm doing it in a somewhat subjective way. So I'm, I'm um, letting you see what's happening in these places. And I, I don't, I want to be able to like, I wanted to be able to stand back and share the page with the people whose stories I was telling. Um, even the way that I chose to quote people on certain places and chose to tell certain stories, I wanted to let their voices come through because the the book is trying to represent a lot of different communities, a lot of different kinds of people. There's an Alaska Native community. Richmond is a historically Black and Latino and just a very diverse community. And so I wanted to let those voices come through as well. So there was this kind of art to like both giving you enough that you could you could read it and feel what I was feeling as you were in these places and feel both, you know, the struggle that people had to deal with in terms of going through these crises that are, are related to climate change, but and also feel how powerful the responses to that had have been, but also be able to hear and see and feel what the characters were. And I say characters, you know, in it in a sort of technical writerly way. I mean, they're all real people, but I, but I wanted you to be able to feel what those people were feeling as well. Yeah. And I don't know if you, I guess I'm, I, I'm, I've read it, you've written it as a, from reader's perspective, there's so many hits where it was like, Oh my God, that's, that, that's something I've seen and I haven't thought about. Um, I mean, certainly in the past was about a month ago, New York had orange skies yeah. uh, and the flooding. I mean, you mentioned Sandy a couple of times. Sandy wasn't really, it wasn't nearly as serious as some other places, but the, oh man, there was that sign in Mose that said like this place is underwater. And, and then it said that sign is 10 years old. Yeah. Do you remember that sign? Do you, uh, yeah. So Fort Mose just to, for people who are listening. Oh, sorry. Yeah, please. Yeah. <laughs> um, for, so Fort Mose is the oldest free black settlement in North America or was in um, under the Spanish colonial rule. Um, slaves um, 
enslaved people escaped from the British colonies and um, came to the Spanish colonies. And the Spanish crown offered them the chance to be citizens of Spain. I think in a lot of ways, it was a strategic move to to have more defenses there at the coast. So um, they set up a, a free community called Fort Mose, and now it's an archaeological site. And you can see, um, we can't see them anymore because they were underwater and, and it's it's an archaeological site. But I mean, you, you can go to an interpretive center and they have some, a lot of information about what was there. There's talk about building a reconstruction there upland from the the flooded area, but you can look out over where the fort was. And now it's this, this salt marsh and there's a couple of little hillocks and uh, stuff around in there. And um, it's a beautiful place, but there are these signs that say this is underwater now. And then there, the signs go on to say sea level rise is affecting and is going to affect this place. And what is that going to look like? And the signs are very faded. They're several years old and um, the place has been hit by hurricanes and there is a scramble to try to document what's there as there is for hundreds of literally thousands of archaeological sites around the United States that are at the coasts. So, I mean, that story, that story is partly about reckoning with our history and about um, the things that we're losing and the things that we're trying to hang on to and the significance of places we care about in this country and the stories that they hold. And that place is, is an incredible story that um, people are trying to figure out how to hold on to despite the flooding. Yeah, while you were speaking, I took the liberty of looking up that part. And I have to, I have to read what the sign said. Yeah. One sign says, uh, it says, a series of blue and white signs cracked and heavily weathered that uh, with some of the letters smudged described the vista before us. All that remains of Fort Mose is underground on the island before you and in the surrounding salt marsh. And then another sign, and then it says, um, just 250 years ago, during the occupation of Fort Mose, the area surrounding the stock was dry land used for farms, ranches, and forts, announced the sign. And then it continues, global climate change is also having an impact. What would happen to our local coastlines if the West Antarctic ice sheet melted, raising global sea levels by as much as 20 feet? The signs are about 10 years old, Thomas said. Yeah, that part, I mean, I, mean, I just couldn't help but think of it. Lower Manhattan is different than there, but it's got this history and could, you know, I've seen the pictures of, you know, various feet of sea level rise. And mm-hmm. so that one hit close to home for me. I can't imagine that, I imagine that most people reading this book would have that effect of like, even if they weren't near one of these places, that something about it, they're near a coast, they're near a forest that could catch fire. Uh, maybe they're up north and it's a place that could thaw. And, yeah, there's a few gut punches like that. I'm, I'm not sure if that gut punches everyone because different pla- different people live in different places. Yeah, and again, these aren't projections. This is this is signed ten years old. Yeah, I mean, I, to be fair, I think there are complex reasons why that site is underwater, and not all of them are sea level rise. To, you know, just to do with um, substance of the land and and you know other other factors that have affected that place. But you know, there's a, a sobering part of those couple of chapters, um, which I, I don't always um, wallop people with in a, in a podcast interview because it's it's a lot to sit with. And it, it was a lot to sit with when I, you know, when I, I watched Andrew Dutton, as a scientist, deliver this information to a group of people and at a conference in the room kind of went into this shocked silence. Um, 
you know, there's, um, there's some evidence that we may have already set ourselves up for about a 20 feet of the west, just based on the warming that we've already put into the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, that's a shocking thing to, to sit with because it means that a lot of our cities are going to be transformed and underwater and we're going to lose things. And then that's already built in. But I think that what we do have a choice about is how quickly that happens. Um, we have a choice about, um, you know, how we adapt and we have a choice about buying time so that people, um, people have time to move. People don't have to suffer as much. People can hang on to the things they care about. And I, I think we need to be real about that and make choices about what, what we hang on to and what we have to let go of. Well, in terms of being sober on a podcast, I'm sure that regular listeners were like, wait, how did Josh not respond? When you called solar and wind renewable, I I don't find solar and wind clean, green, or renewable. They're just – I mean, the, the solar power, this, the actual energy in the wind, they're going on for a long time. But the machines to get that stuff are um, – I would not call them clean. I would not call them green. I would not call them renewable. But that doesn't mean that we can't buy time a lot more effectively without – by dramatically – well, improving our lives – by dramatically reducing our consumption. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people, when they hear like, wait, it's not clean, green, or renewable, some will push back and say, yes, it is. We'll just, well, if we don't get cobalt from one place, then we'll somehow get it from another or we'll substitute something else for it. Or they'll, I don't know. I don't know how they dance around it. But then they get stuck. Like, well, if we can't do this, we can't do that. They feel like there's nothing else. But that's not the case. There's... The alternative to um, having all the energy we want anytime we want is not falling back into the Stone Age and 30 becoming old age again. But people think it is. I mean, this is an area of a lot of active debate. And I think I think it is important to recognize that there, you know, none of these sources of energy are free of impact. Um you know, and there's a lot of choices to be made about solar and about the metals that go into solar panels and about how those affect particular places and communities. And that's a very active discussion that's happening all over the place. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think I think um, it's we probably do ourselves a disservice when we talk about these sources of energy being totally benign as if, you know, they just magically materials. Um, but I, I think it sounds like I'm saying something that you've already talked about a lot on, on the podcast, but, um, you know, I think, I think in a way home is a useful lens for looking at those questions too, because th there are communities that are going to be affected by, you know, all of the technological decisions that get made about solar and wind. And, and those communities also have to have a conversation about what kind of home do we want? And, um, you know, what are we willing to change and what are we willing to, you know, what what kind of future are we creating here? And um, I think having those conversations may lead us to make wider decisions about how we how we use energy, um, how we come up with efficiency, how we build places, how we respond to all of these challenges. Yeah, I think here we're getting beyond the scope of the book because that's... Probably, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to... Switch to the Spodic method that I talked to you about before. 
if it's okay with you, well, here's the first question. I think I know the answer to it. Is the environment something that matters to you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so different people in their mind's eye have a different vision of what the environment is. And I mean, most people have a fairly complex thing, but uh, view, but when you think of the environment, like if you think of yourself in a quintessential moment in your life, when you're surrounded by nature, does anything particular come to mind? It's, I mean, it's different for everyone. Can you, can you repeat it one more time? I, when you think of an image in my head. Yeah. When you think of yourself, of some time in nature where you're in, when you're in nature, what's around you? What, what's nature like for you? What, when you, what does the environment mean to you? There's so many different things that come into my mind. Um, I think one of the oldest memories that's connected to that is just of a, honestly, of a particular tree in my backyard when I was a kid. I used to climb trees a lot. Uh-huh. And um, I would, do that when I needed a little time to myself or I needed some time to think, or I just, I just wanted a um, sort of a space that was mine. I think kids often need, need that a little space to sort of just be themselves. And um, so there was that. Um, and that was in my backyard. So that was my home, a, a part of my home. Um, the other, another few images that come to mind are around Puget Sound where I live now. So um, I like to kayak a lot. So I get an image in my mind of being out on the Puget Sound um, in my kayak with my husband. Um, And there's something, so the Puget Sound is an urban waterway. I mean, there's lots of cities around it, including Seattle. And um, so, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of, policy questions and, and community questions that we struggle with in terms of protecting the waters of the Puget Sound and keeping pollution out of them. But there's an interesting thing that I feel when I go out into the Puget Sound, which is that I immediately feel like I'm kind of in a wilderness space, even when I'm surrounded by a lot of buildings. It's just so, um, it's such a powerful body of water and there's so much life in it. There's so many other creatures living in it. There's seals, harbor seals swimming around and there's um, sea stars and anemones and all kinds of things under the surface. And, um, it's just so incredibly beautiful. And I think maybe that's a nice metaphor for environment because it's, you know, the environment is the space where we share, we share space with other, you know, with, with ecosystems, with other species, with, um, and we have to negotiate that space, which is part of what the book is about too. I'm really curious about both of these, and I'll arbitrarily go with the tree in your childhood. Okay. So, because I mean, it sounded like it came to you first, and so this is a tree that you would climb. What what kind of tree was it? If you don't mind, do you remember? I believe it was probably a silver maple. And what was your? Can you describe it? So, say you're. it sounds like something happens inside and you're like, oh, I want to get away. And you go out and you're like, oh, I'm going to climb this tree. Was it a big yard? Was it, or was it like outside the property? And when you were in it, were you escaping from the world or was it more connecting with the world? Or what, I mean, what did you see and, and smell and hear up there when you went there? Um, so I was a little of both connecting and escaping. Um, my family had a lot of, um, conflict, let's say, 
Um, and so, and I learned to climb this tree when I was pretty young and it was a big spreading maple tree in a backyard that was relatively big. I think it was a half acre, um, in, at the edge of Troy, New York. And, um, my mom had a garden at the bottom of the hill, but I would, I would climb, it, it was a good tree for climbing because it had lots of branches that you could grab a hold of. The bark was really smooth, kind of a grayish bark. And, um, you know, I'd hang out, out up there and just, I think I liked the, the texture of the tree in a way. And I, I, they're, you know, watching the birds and just the breeze blowing in the tree. And, uh, yeah. Um, that leafy smell, but. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm sorry. You just caught me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I went there. It was, it was a refuge, um, for me. Um, from some of the conflict that was happening in my family. And it was also a place where I could do a lot of thinking. Sometimes I'd bring my journal up there and I would write my journal in the tree. <laughs> uh -huh. So, yeah. I, yeah, I apologize for interrupting. When, I, when you said that leafy smell, it like suddenly I was like, yes, like I smelled it when you said it. And I didn't mean to say anything, but it came out so powerfully that I was like, someone called <laughs> me like that before when um, they were talking about their grandmother's garden in Puerto Rico. And she said, it was the smell of dirt or something. I forget exactly what she said. And I was like, that's the smell of the garden when I was a kid growing up. And yeah, these visceral feelings. What, what kind of emotions did you feel up there? I think I felt very peaceful, honestly. And I also felt a little bit proud of myself for being able to climb that tree. Because <laughs> uh -huh. um, I could get relatively high in, into it. And so it was, um, it was kind of a physical challenge that I enjoyed. Well, I, I heard that it had a nice. Bar oh, sorry. I was going to say I heard it had a really uh, comfortable bark. <laughs> yeah, it did. So sorry to interrupt. But you were saying? Oh, I just I wasn't a very sporty kid, and so I think doing something like that that was kind of physical was really satisfying to me because I I wasn't you know I wasn't out playing softball or something. All right. So, given the feelings that you had up there of of peacefulness. I think you said escape earlier, accomplishment. I invite you to think of something that you could do today. And this, you don't have to do it if you want, but if, you, to, if you're up for it, to think of something you could do to act on those feelings of peacefulness, of accomplishment, to bring them about, you know, not exactly those things, but something like that today. And if you're up for it, to share what that experience was like, to reconnect or recreate, re-manifest feelings like that with a couple constraints if you're up for it. It's something that you do yourself, mm. something you do with your own hands uh, that you're not and that you're not already doing, and something active. So not watching a movie or reading a book, but something where afterward you can say, you know, I left it in some way better than I found it. Would you be game for coming up with something? If, if, if you're up for it, some people come up with something right away, but usually it takes about five or 10 minutes of, of coming up with something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I may have to think about it for a little bit. I, I think what immediately comes to mind is, is my backyard garden. Um, but that is something that I kind of do already. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's not. Some, usually there's something kind of immediate. I mean, it could be augmenting something that's already there if you weren't going to do that. Mm -hmm. But usually it takes a bit of back and forth. I think, I think because a lot of people 
Oh, yeah. Let me mention something I didn't say, which almost everyone hears, is I didn't say what's something you can do to fix the world's problems. It may fix a problem or it may not. That's not the point. It's just – it's really to bring about some sort of peaceful feeling or some sort of sense of accomplishment around something in your life today. Um, usually, usually that makes it easier for people so they don't have to feel like, oh, how is this going to scale and fix everything? It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have to do that. Um, yeah. In a funny way, I think um, I'm, I have my book sitting here on my desk, and I think that image of the tree actually connects in an interesting way with the cover of my book. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to bring it back to my book in a sort of like, I mean, we are talking about my book, but I'm not just saying this in a, in a promotional way. I mean, I do actually think that like a lot of what's in the book resonates with those those experiences that I just told you about. And there's this house on the front of the tree that has a... a Sorry. The house on the front of the book yeah. has a forest in it, and it has like a tree going across it with a bird's nest. And um, to me, there's something really evocative about them. Um, it was painted by a Washington State artist. But um, I think I'm going off on a tangent a little bit from what you're asking, except that I think that that, that relationship between home and nature. Uh, it speaks to me a lot personally as well. And um, I think, I mean, something I could, I might have to think about it for a little bit. Yeah, usually it almost always takes a bit of back and forth. And that's something that I think listeners appreciate because there's often this message, oh, it's easy. Here's 10 simple things you can do for the environment. And it it's as if, you don't want to do it, so we have to convert, coerce you into it, or convince you into it. Whereas, and so we disconnect with our actual intrinsic motivations often, because, oh, you want to do something with a garden? Didn't you know Bangladesh is going to be underwater? You're wasting your time. You're doing something unimportant. Whereas, I think that connecting with those motivations and those emotions is, I consider it essential. Can I say something I'm, I'm, I've already been doing a little bit with this book that is, is pretty well, I mean, it, it's not a new thing, so it doesn't, it doesn't speak to what you're saying in that way, but, um, but it's something that I've been starting to work on. Can, can I tell you about it? Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. So, um, a couple months ago, I did this, um, there's this environmental conference on Bainbridge Island, which is just across the Puget Sound from Seattle. Um, this, this island community, um, it's quite a beautiful, place um and uh there's a an climate adaptation organization that's based there called EcoAdapt and the conference was organized by that organization and a scientist there who serves on the um intergovernmental panel on climate change and also a bunch of local activists who are very involved in trying to do different kinds of environmental work on Bainbridge Island and so they actually called it our island home on an unruly planet. Uh-huh. Uh, and there were a couple hundred people there. And um, at the beginning, I talked about a lot of the stories in the book and how they're relevant to that community. And so I gave a talk. And then uh, Laura Hansen, the scientist on the IPCC, came up and gave a talk about what the data show about what's happening on Bainbridge Island and what kinds of impacts that place is facing. 
And then everybody broke into groups and they had these little conversations about how do we deal with things like sea level rise on our shorelines? How do we protect the forests that are part of this island? How do we, what is, what's important to this place and how do we hang on to that? And everybody brainstormed as different set of actions and they all committed to these actions, kind of like what you're talking about. And they wrote them down on pieces of paper and um, the, the EcoDapt and the organizers connect, collected them and they're going to follow up with all of these people in a few months and talk to them about what they've done. And I, I found it so wonderful and inspiring because it's really how I dreamed the book would be useful to people that they would be able to use it to think about their own stories and their own homes and, and, you know, how they can respond to these kinds of issues. And so, um, I've been talking with these same folks about having a whole series of conversations in other places, like on college campuses and in other communities, using the book to, as a starting point and using storytelling as a starting point to get people to think about what kinds of stories can they tell about the community and what kinds of things can they imagine and what can they do. So it's a, it's a little bit like what you're, you're describing in terms of your own method for getting people to take action. And I'm, I'm pretty excited about it. <laughs> Yeah, there's a, a difference is that I'm trying to tap into people's intrinsic motivations that are already there, mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, look at what might happen if we don't do something. Yeah. So it's different motivations, although it is, and there's, but there's an action component that uh -huh. I think is a major difference in just reading or writing or talking, which I'm not saying those aren't important, but uh -huh. acting is well, no, I mean, I mean, the the goal is to get people to take action, so to pe people to to brainstorm a set of actions and start working on them, and then to follow up with them about whether they've taken those actions. So, um, yeah. But I, but you're right. There there are some some differences as well. But I I just wanted to tell you about it because I I I'm kind of excited about it. You're making me want to hear what I I look forward to hearing what people the results of what comes of people's actions after mm -hmm. they hear back from them. Cause I think it's me. I mean, these second conversations I have with people after they've done stuff, mm -hmm. it's night and day. I mean, there's a huge difference between I have to do this although oh, versus, you know, this, this tree in my backyard when I was a child or, you know, everyone's has a unique different thing and mm -hmm. reconnecting to that. Mm -hmm. is not the only thing, but it's a, it, it often turns out to be, something really refreshing to hear and they tend to want to do more, not less after mm -hmm. they've done something. Mm -hmm. Does anything, anything more coming to mind? I mean, I think I'm, I'm sort of um, not doing the exact thing that you want because I keep thinking of how the things that I do connect with this story, like the things that I, the sort of choices that I made about my career and like how it, the things that I'm, choosing to focus on are actually very connected to this story of me and the tree with the journal because, um, you know, I was, I was up there writing away. And also, um, I used to have a lot of thoughts as a kid about our, our connectedness to nature and what we got from that. And, um, I think that's had a, a big influence on how I do my work as a journalist. Um, I'm going to be working on a story about, old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest and um, the kinds of conservation work that's being done to try to protect those places in this era of change um, and what scientists are working on. So that's 
sort of connected to this question of trees and place and and how are we all um but those aren't new things so I don't, i'm not quite coming up with this sort of step that i can offer you easily yeah it usually takes a little while and the things you're talking about it's not just that the things you're already doing they're also things that sound like to me like you're trying to influence others as opposed to your own personal experience and also sounds like trying to save things as opposed to peace and and, and achievement and and you didn't say fun, but or you said escape, but I, I feel like it sounded like a fun thing. Well, of the tree? The cli- climbing the tree, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, this could be something that you enjoy, not something that yeah. you have to, like. Well, I mean, I also enjoy the, the work that I do. I mean, it's hard. I find it hard sometimes, but um, but yeah. But um, it's something that's just sort of more personal, you're saying. And yeah. Cool. You probably enjoy gardening. Now, you're already doing that. And whether that came from the tree or not, I don't know. But if you hadn't gardened, like gardening might be something. In my experience, I I mean, all I have is little windowsill stuff because I live in Manhattan. Although I really want to get a garden going up on a roof. I got to get it through my board, my co-op board. But, you know, I enjoy it like because I have all these edible things. And I go over and I'm like, the oregano I just had some this morning. And it's like unbelievable, the flavor yeah. I mean, the stuff in the store is nothing. I mean, I get that from a CSA, so it's not just me on my own. But it's a real joy. Like, it's what closer experience of nature than, you know, it becoming me because I eat it. So you're already gardening. But if you weren't gardening, that would be something. Is there something like that if that's an enjoyable thing, that's an enjoyable thing? Or it doesn't have to be joy. It could be peacefulness and achievement and what you got out of the tree. Does it need to be brand new? Like something I haven't done before? A lot of people pick things that they've done before but didn't have a new instance planned or they've done it before and now they're doing it more. Um, Some people do things less, like driving less or something like that. So, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind is just a a commitment to run a number of errands in the next few weeks. And I I didn't mention this earlier, but I'm actually moving for a year across the country to – so I have a fellowship at MIT, a journalism fellowship. Um, it starts mm-hmm. in August and um, I'll be there for a year. And so I, I have a lot of errands to run right now. And it occurs to me that I, I could run a bunch more of them by bicycle. Um, I mean, I, you know, I do some of that anyway, but I could do more of it um, because that also, it simultaneously like keeps me from dr- driving to do them. But also it's the feeling of being out on the bicycle is very freeing and um well, sometimes it's peaceful. It depends on what, what's going on in the street, but <laughs> but it but it is um, an, an experience of kind of being out out in the environment. Um, yeah, I mean that certainly fits the bill of you doing it yourself. Uh, it's something that you weren't already. If if you were going to drive those instead, then it certainly fits the next two of you weren't going to do it. It's it's new in the sense of you weren't going to do it, and it's. Um, it seems to me that it would leave things better than you found it if it's if you're not driving. And biking instead. Mm-hmm. So that would certainly fit the bill. And the only thing is, is it something that would make you, and it sounded, well, you can answer this better than I can. Does it, would it be something like um, manifesting that tree feeling? I think so to some degree. I mean, not entirely right because um, Seattle traffic and Seattle drivers can be a little stressful. So it's <laughs> the same kind of refuge as sitting in a tree, but um, it is, I do find it very enjoyable and freeing and um, physical. I, I talked about how it was nice to be 
the, the sort of the physical part of being in the tree and um you know it has some of those those aspects so would you could we schedule a second conversation where you talk about what that what that was like sure and all right so about how long do you think it would be before uh, if I ask you how did it go, that you could have a meaningful, you know, you've had enough experiences with it. Um, maybe a couple weeks. All right. So uh, after we record, but before we hang up, do you mind if we set up a, a schedule a second conversation? Uh, sure. Okay. And okay, I'll ask you a question that uh, I ask sometimes. I walked you through this process to lead you to this, so. You might not have come up with it if not for me walking you through it. So are you doing this for me? No. What are you doing it for? Um, I love being out on a bicycle and it gives me another excuse to motivate myself to do it a little bit more than I might have. So I really – do you see how this is like slightly different than the usual approach? Mm-hmm. So I predict – all right, so you say you like it. Now, I predict that however much you think you'll like it, when you actually do it, you're going to like it more than you expect. All right. Even take into account that I just said that. Uh-huh. Because there's something about – I mean, I like to bike too. And mm-hmm. sometimes I'm just biking within the city and it's it's annoying. I mean, I don't – I haven't ridden in Seattle, but certainly New York. As many bike lanes as we have, it's nothing compared to what we ought to have – what I think we ought to have. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's one that I, I love saying this one to bikers in the city. I want to take all the bike lanes in, in New York City and all the car lanes and swap them. <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cars can have those little thing, little gutter things and the bikes uh-huh. get the free rein over the rest. Uh-huh. And then over time, we can make the car lanes yet smaller. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that the – so I look forward to, to hearing if – how it changes because I – there's something I didn't ask you about in your book that I'll, I'll prompt for next time okay. is that the book didn't talk much about the average person changing their behavior. Hmm. The corporation should change things like that. But I think a lot of people view the change in behavior of say biking more as like a burden. Hmm. It's not our responsibility. Hmm. And I don't, I feel like the changes that I've, the first couple changes I did I thought, all right, I'm taking one for the team here. I, you know, I'll suffer, but it's for the greater good in some sense, even though I knew that personal action wouldn't matter. That's what I thought at the time. But as I did more and more things, I realized, wait a minute, this is actually making my life better. And it's hard to interface with society. It's, I mean, when everyone around me, they use the words fly and travel interchangeably. Like if it's not flying, it's not really traveling. But I've gone on bike trips just to nearby state parks that were the equal of any trip that I've taken by flight. And people keep feeling like, oh, that's too much to ask people. They're not the, you know, you shouldn't, we didn't cause the problem. But I'm like, it's better. But without the experience, I think people feel that that's, um, oh, they should change, not us. But I'm like, it's better. Now, everyone doesn't have the same values and experiences that I do. So better for me doesn't mean it's better for others. But it's something that I think people recoil at the thought of changing, mm-hmm. but they haven't had that change. It feels like an addict facing withdrawal, and they're like, I don't want to go through that. But there's no way to get to the other side of it. 
Yeah. So I'm curious to hear how your experience goes. With this, the biking or with or the answer to that question about the book and personal experience? The biking and how it, it – I didn't ask that question because I didn't want to get too far afield from your from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to engage on that question now, I, I'd be happy to. But I'm also curious to engage on it after the experience. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We can talk about it more then. I mean, I think one of the – the main things I would say is that I chose in the book to focus on the scale of community because I think it's a neglected scale. I think we we talk there are conversations about things like carbon footprints and people talk personally individually do and and those are important. But there's a lot of solutions that happen in community and just engaging with your neighbors as a, as a personal thing or engaging with your community because we're so individualistic, right? We have such an individualistic society, and I think coming back into community and, and finding solutions together is going to be a really important part of, is a really important part of dealing with climate change. I completely agree. And I find that every step I take towards sustainability, no matter how hard it looks before I do it, on the other side of it is always connecting more with people mm-hmm. and wildlife. Mm-hmm. And it's always joyful. And like, I guess one place where that really hit me was during the pandemic when my CSA was wrapping every vegetable in a plastic bag. And I asked the volunteers, can we do something about this? The volunteer, I mean, everyone takes their turn volunteering, handing, you know, distributing the vegetables. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, that happens at the farm. So there's nothing we can do about it. So you'd have to talk to the farm. And I was like, I guess I will. And they're like, oh man, you're going to really bother them. And so I contacted the farm and said, is there any way we can not have plastic on every single thing? And the guy, said, I'm so glad that you called. All we get is complaints, not suggestions. Hmm. And I said, I'm not going to complain. If you, if everything I get is completely wilted and bruised, I will not complain. And he was like, great. We're going to do an experiment with you that we couldn't do otherwise because we felt we had to wrap everything in plastic. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So the, this was over the winter. So two weeks later, uh, I go to get my uh, my box and I come up and I say, hi, I'm Josh Bodek. And they go, da, 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 da. oh, you get the no plastic one. And the woman standing next to me waiting for her box goes, you can get no plastic? I want that. So it's like, yeah, yeah it was. I was kind of nervous about contacting the farm, but the guy was like happy that I contacted him. And then the people started getting no plastic. Mm-hmm. You had it in the – yeah, there was two terms in the book and I'm going to – I'm not going to say them right. The Australian guy with that solastangia or something like that. Oh, yeah. And the opposite word was – so what, were the, what was that word? And then the philia was not toward – it was toward community, if I remember right. Can you remind me? Can you refresh my memory? Yeah. So soul nostalgia is derived from the word nostalgia. And this Australian philosopher, Glenn Albrecht, coined it to talk about – so the word nostalgia originally didn't just refer to our, you know, feelings about some warm, fuzzy place in the past or, you know, however people use it now. Um, it usually – it originally just referred to homesickness and – um when it was coined centuries ago, people talked about homesickness as if it was actually a an ailment, like you could get sick from homesickness. So this Australian philosopher wanted to come up with an idea of, uh, of a term for what it means when um, we feel stress or other kinds of distress, psychological distress, when our home is disrupted in some way. And so soul nostalgia is the idea that you feel homesick, but you haven't actually left home because your home has, has started to change. 
And to some degree, we're all experiencing that now, I think, because of climate change. You know, we're living in places that don't feel like they did before. They're hotter or they're more flooded or they're getting wildfires or, you know, any number of other impacts. Um, Solophilia is kind of the, the, um, an antidote, not exactly an antidote, but like a, a way that you can respond to solastalgia. So solophilia is the idea that we experience a kind of sense of unity and pleasure and joy and, um, solace from engaging with community, engaging with the world, um, protecting the things we care about and the environment around us, that that brings us a sense of joy and connectedness. And that doing that can often help us overcome these feelings of homesickness and sadness and climate anxiety and all of the other stress that we're feeling from the world we're living in now. Yeah. And I'd add one more thing to that, not just those feelings, but also inaction, because if the action is deprivation and sacrifice, well, I don't want to do that. But if the action mm-hmm. is connection community, of course I want to do that. I think – and that's why I, I was really glad to see that part of the opposite of inaction is joy. And mm-hmm. I, I don't think people get that. Yeah. Um, a, a book that I read many years ago, um, it came out probably a decade ago by Rebecca Sinnott. It's called Paradise Built in Hell, and it talks about – the the joy that people feel actually after they've been through and had to respond to a disaster, like people go through an earthquake and they have to come together and figure out what to do and how to support each other. And they, you know, they set up random little kitchens or they set up medical clinics for each other. Or they help people rebuild. There's some of that in the book when you see like, um, there's a lot of it in the book, really. I think um, when you when you see, for instance, Pateras, Washington, the community that was burned down in a wildfire, how they got together and rebuilt. There was a lot of sadness and grief people felt from what they lost, but there was also a lot of joy in coming together and supporting each other and building these houses and putting up new walls and getting organized and helping each other clean things out. And and um, I think we we don't always recognize that that's part of the experience that. Um, Sometimes things that are hard are also joyful at the same time. And sometimes things that we think are going to be hard, as you say, aren't necessarily hard. They're actually just joyful. So, I mean, there's a lot of that to recognize as well. We get joy from being in community with other people. That's how we're, we're made as humans. And that's part of what, what home is, I think, as well. And part of what I was trying to reflect on in, in some of those essay parts of the book where I'm talking about the meaning of home. Well, I have a big smile on my face and a warmed heart, and I propose we both wrap up here and start here next time, okay. unless there's anything else to wrap up with at your end. No, that sounds great. Well, Madeline Ostrander, thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.